Dr. Mary Samuels is a professor of medicine at OHSU. She graduated from the University of Chicago and Harvard Medical School and completed residency and fellowship training at the University of Colorado. Dr. Samuels is program director of the OHSU Clinical and Translational Research Center and has been a member of the American Thyroid Association Executive Board. She served on editorial boards of prominent endocrinology journals, as well as the NIH General Clinical Research Center and Clinical and Translational Science Award Review Committees. Dr. Samuel's research focus is on neurocognitive and metabolic effects of altered thyroid status. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Samuels. Thank you, Laura, for that lovely introduction. And it's a true uh, honor and a pleasure to be here uh, to present this year's uh, Kammer Memorial Endocrinology Lecture on a topic near and dear to my heart, which is mild thyroid dysfunction, does it matter? So let's start with a few definitions of what I mean by mild thyroid dysfunction. Um, and that is illustrated on this slide. It comes in two uh, flavors, mild or what we often call subclinical hypothyroidism, which is defined as an isolated elevated TSH with T4 and T3, the thyroid hormones, normal, um, or mild or what we often call subclinical hyperthyroidism, an isolated low or suppressed TSH, again with normal T4 and T3 levels. So how does this happen and how can we explain it? Well, that's uh, shown here on the left-hand side of the slide with the classic hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis that we all know about. And as you all know, TSH here, secreted by the pituitary gland, plays a central role uh, in this axis. And so what happens in mild hypothyroidism is that for whatever reason, the thyroid gland starts making not quite enough thyroid hormone, primarily T4. And that can be for whatever reason. It's usually Hashimoto's disease, but it can be from other reasons as well. And so if we measure the T4 and the T3, they are still in the broad population reference range for the laboratory. But they have snuck down a little bit below that patient's set point for thyroid action, uh, which is genetically determined and which is much more tightly regulated than the broad population range. <clears throat> so for example, somebody's T4 may normally be 1.2 and it goes down to 1.0, which is still in the reference range. And so we wouldn't pick it up, but the pituitary gland picks it up, senses that, and increases its production of TSH to try and stimulate uh, that failing thyroid gland. Um, conversely, if for whatever reason the thyroid gland starts to make a little bit too much T4, T3, and again, this can be for all sorts of reasons, Graves disease and so on, um, we're still measuring this in the broad population normal range, but the pituitary gland senses this suppresses its production of TSH to try and uh, settle down the thyroid gland. So these are real entities. They're not just laboratory uh, abnormalities. And I'm going to spend most of my uh, uh, talk on the first entity, mild or subclinical hypothyroidism, uh, and then just a touch on mild or subclinical hyperthyroidism near the end of the talk. And that's because uh, mild hypothyroidism uh, is very common. There's a lot more literature on it. Uh, it's often um, kind of more of a uh, conundrum as to whether to treat it. And so I'll spend most of my time on that. 
OK, so the first question uh, for me to try and um, answer for you is why do we care? Why is mild or subclinical hypothyroidism important? Well, for one thing, it's extremely common. It occurs in up to 20% of older women, uh, somewhat less common in older men, but still common. And so you will see this almost every day uh, in your clinic. Um, and it may have clinical consequences. It's no it's not just a biochemical abnormality, but they're often not the consequences that patients are concerned about. And I will go into a lot of detail on what patients are worried about versus what endocrinologists are worried about with this entity. And then finally, from a public health perspective, levothyroxine or LT4 is the most commonly prescribed drug in the US and, is, and it is overprescribed. So we often accidentally induce hyperthyroidism in our patients and that does have clinical consequences. So let's uh, go into a little bit more detail about uh, the epidemiology of this, of LT4 treatment and overtreatment. Uh, so uh, thyroid hormone use doubled in the United States between 1997 and 2016, and that's illustrated on this graph, such that by 2016, uh, almost 8% or 8% of the is still working? Can you still hear me? Okay, there we go. Um, about 8% of the U.S. adult population was receiving levothyroxine, and that's a huge number. Um, and the, um, the reasons that we're treating so many people with hypothyroidism is that they have very mild abnormalities in TSH, which I just mentioned are quite common. So this is another recent study uh, where they looked at uh, what the initial TSH levels were before patients were started on levothyroxine. And the mean initial TSH uh, over time in this study was only five. And you'll recall that uh, the upper limit of normal in most of our assays is four. So this is barely elevated at all. So we are primarily treating uh, mild hypothyroidism. 60% of the cases here over the years of this study uh, shown in this kind of middle uh, grayish blue bar uh, had subclinical or mild hypothyroidism, not overt hypothyroidism. And most of the time the TSH was less than 10. And uh, remember that uh, cutoff because that's um, often the cutoff we use uh, for treating um, based on some data I'll show you later. And what's, what's even more concerning uh, shown on the upper uh, the upper part of this graph is that about 30% of patients over this time period had normal initial TSH levels and were started on levothyroxine. Now, occasionally there's a reason to do that, but in fact, that's pretty rare. And so um, my guess is that most of these patients are being um, inappropriately treated. Does that have consequences? Well, what happens to these uh, people who uh, start on levothyroxine? It turns out that over 90% of them remain on LT4 for uh, at least five years. So this kind of ends up being a permanent uh, medication. Um, and well, so, you know, what's the big deal about that? Levothyroxine is usually inexpensive, usually safe. But in addition to the um, the, convenient, the inconvenience and the cost of being on this medication and requiring monitoring and prescriptions and all that, it turns out that a large uh, proportion of these uh, patients are actually uh, inadvertently overtreated, and that's uh, uh, they have a lower suppressed TSH. Um, and this is another uh, article, and it, it graphs the 
uh, lower uh, suppressed TSHs uh, according to age range. And you can see that a significant number of people, especially the older population, has either a low TSH or a completely suppressed TSH on levothyroxine. And this is especially problematic in older patients because they are at higher risk for adverse consequences. Uh, so this is a, an important public health issue. And I hope that that helps convince you uh, why we should uh, care about this. Okay, let's turn now to clinical considerations. Um, I'm gonna present a case here that I saw a number of years ago. She's a 47-year-old woman with a long history of multiple symptoms. Her main symptoms were fatigue, depression, what she can, uh, called brain fog. I'll talk more about that in a minute, uh, and weight fluctuations. She was thought to have Hashimoto's disease a year earlier due to multiple symptoms and a mildly elevated TSH documented by her PCP, but she did not return at that time for follow-up. So um, she came to my clinic uh, and I evaluated her. At that time, her past medical history was significant for anxiety and depression. She was not taking any medications. On physical exam, she was fatigue appearing but had no obvious signs of hypothyroidism. She did, however, have a mildly enlarged 30 gram and firm thyroid gland, and that is classic for Hashimoto's or autoimmune hypothyroidism. Her TSH a year earlier by her PCP was uh, mildly elevated at 10.3. Repeat uh, in my um, uh, clinic was uh, 12. Um, and her free T4 was normal, confirming mild or subclinical hypothyroidism. So as I'm seeing her in clinic, what are her priorities? Well, they're pretty obvious and pretty appropriate. They are, she wants to feel better um, and she wants to lose weight. Um, I have some of the same priorities, but also some other ones. Uh, first of all, of course, I want to help her feel better. Um, but I'm also thinking about clinical effects of mild hypothyroidism that could harm her in the long run, but which she may not be aware of because they're not causing symptoms. And then finally, um, my third priority is that I need to explain to her that many of her symptoms um, uh, may not be related to this mild abnormality in thyroid function and therefore may not get a lot better with LT4. So this leads me to my first caveat. I've sprinkled three of them uh, through this talk, and here's the first one. And that is that temporary elevations in TSH are common. Uh, and that is shown uh, in this uh, study here on the left-hand side of the slide, but also in a lot of other studies since then. And mild TSH elevations, especially if it's only up to 10, if you don't treat it, but you just wait, up to 50% of those uh, just resolve on their own over time. Um, why is that? Well, we don't usually know. It could be a little bit of a, a temporary uh, inflammation in the thyroid gland called thyroiditis. It could be that the patient is recovering from a, any one of a variety of non-thyroidal illness uh, issues where uh, the non-thyroidal illness temporarily suppresses the TSH, and then as you recover, there's a little bit of a rebound. There might be some natural variation in immune activity uh, uh, directed to the thyroid gland, but for whatever reason, what this shows us is that it's almost always best to repeat the TSH before starting uh, uh, LT4, which, as I just showed you, often ends up being a lifelong drug. Uh, or hormone, and you don't want to have somebody on a medication lifelong for a temporary problem. Okay, 
So here is what my patient in clinic is hoping, and that is that her mild hypothyroidism is causing um, the symptoms um, that she is uh, in distress about. Unfortunately, multiple cross-sectional studies, um, many of them now, and meta-analyses have shown that this is not the case. And the important thing about these studies is that the people with mild or subclinical hypothyroidism in these large studies don't know that they have mild hypothyroidism. So these are really big um, community-based, population-based um, studies where they measure TSH levels in thousands of people um, and they uh, do um, surveys for these symptoms um, and there's no difference in the prevalence of the symptoms between the people with normal TSH and the people with elevated TSH. Uh, um, as long as they don't know they have uh, the mild hypothyroidism. Um, and that's going to be a theme that goes on and on through my talk, because as soon as you tell somebody they have mild hypothyroidism, uh, you introduce a bias in terms of what they attribute their symptoms to and uh, whether they think they might get better. Okay, so the other thing that my patient is hoping for is that if we treat her mild hypothyroidism, it will improve all of these symptoms. And unfortunately, again, multiple blinded controlled treatment studies and a recent meta-analysis, again, have shown that people with mildly elevated TSH levels, if you give them levothyroxine and you normalize their TSH levels, none of these outcomes change. And again, the important point here is that the studies are blinded because if you give somebody open label, LT4, and they go and read um, in the internet and they talk to their neighbors about all the great benefits of LT4, you're introducing uh, a bias in terms of uh, symptom control, which may or may not be a bad thing, right, if you can do it safely. But um, objectively and biologically, uh, if you blind these studies, um, you don't see any significant improvement. Okay, so let's talk for a minute about this other distressing symptom she's got, which is often a um, major symptom in our patients with, um, per, uh, with uh, symptoms, and that is hypothyroidism-associated brain fog. Um, and I was actually asked uh, by the editor-in-chief of our flagship journal, Thyroid, um, which is an exciting read, by the way, if you ever want to get into that, um, I was asked to um, write a review article on hypothyroidism-associated brain fog. And I naively said, sure, I'll do this, um, and then uh, lived to regret it because it was probably the most difficult review article I've ever written. Fortunately for me, the editor put me in contact with a neuropsychologist who studies chemotherapy-induced brain fog, um, who helped me um, through this literature um, and um, helped me understand a lot more about brain fog. So what is brain fog? Um, it, there is no standard definition, actually. Um, the best definition we have is that it is a constellation of persisting, uh, persistent and distressing symptoms, which usually include fatigue and depression and always include cognitive dysfunction. Um, and the main cognitive areas are memory and executive function. It is not specific to hypothyroidism, obviously. Uh, it's actually been described in a lot more detail in uh, the oncology literature, as well as chronic fatigue syndrome, and now, as you're all seeing, in long COVID. Um, in terms of 
uh, brain fog uh, described by our hypothyroid patients, the symptoms often predate hypothyroid, the hypothyroid diagnosis by years. And to me, at least, that raises the question of whether it's related to the thyroid disease at all or whether our patients have two things that, uh, going on that are unrelated, mild hypothyroidism and brain fog for whatever other reason. Um, so we don't know in this field whether um, the uh, brain fog is related in some way to hypothyroid pathophysiology in the brain or whether there's something else entirely unrelated going on. Um, and part of the problem here is that there are essentially no rigorous studies in these patients um, who report brain fog and no validated measures in the thyroid field for brain fog. So there are probably patients with brain fog in those big cross-sectional studies I just mentioned, but the studies were not specifically designed to enroll only those subjects, and so they're probably lost or their data are diluted in the larger population studies. So until more targeted research is done, specifically in this patient population, the clinical approach is the same as in other Hypo, uh, other uh, brain fog associated conditions, and that is optimizing diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction, which is often not what our patients want to hear because those things are hard. And one of the things I learned from my colleague is that in other fields, uh, cognitive rehabilitation for brain fog, especially in the oncology field, is well-established and effective. And so I think in the thyroid field, um, we uh, uh, should utilize um, uh, this much more referral for cognitive rehabilitation until the point where we may have more targeted therapies. Okay, so I've now gone over uh, my patient's priorities and what she uh, is interested in. Now let's talk about uh, one of my main priorities when I'm seeing her, and that is uh, her cardiovascular risk. So this is a, I'm having trouble seeing here, this is a meta-analysis of over 500,000 participants uh, from 35 observational cohorts. 5.7% of these people had mild or subclinical hypothyroidism and the rest were euthyroid. And as you can see here in the overall analysis shown in the orange bars, um, both cardiovascular events and all-cause mortality uh, was increased um, uh, in the subclinical hypothyroid group compared to the euthyroid group. Sub-analysis showed uh, that this was true in specifically in the subgroups who had um, underlying high cardiovascular risk or in younger patients, but not in older patients. And so I'm worried about this woman's uh, long-term cardiovascular risk. Now, why would this come about only in younger patients? That's a little counterintuitive because you might think, well, uh, older people are um, have a lot more risk factors for cardiovascular disease and mortality, so that should be increased there. Um, well, one of the definition or one of the explanations put forward is that um, they have so many other reasons to have cardiovascular disease and mortality that the small additional risk in mild hypothyroidism is kind of diluted out, whereas it's more prominent in younger people who probably have lower cardiovascular risk and have more years to have cumulative effects of mild hypothyroidism. Um, and that may and well be may well be true. 
but I'm uh, going to um, put forth another possible explanation for that data in younger versus older patients with my second caveat, and that is that the TSH reference range that the laboratory is telling us depends on age and antibody status. So let's spend a minute um, thinking about that. So this is a histogram over here of uh, TSH levels men uh, measured here on the x-axis from zero up to six uh, in uh, thousands of people um, uh, shown here on the y-axis. And these are people with no known thyroid disease. So we think that they are euthyroid. And you can see that uh, if this were uh, performing like a regular old um, uh, uh, assay, um, that this should look like a bell-shaped curve, right? Because 95% of people should be inside that bell-shaped curve. And then by definition, 2.5% uh, should be below it and 2.5% should be above it. Um, but that's obviously not what this curve looks like. And instead, what's going on is that there are a significant number of uh, people ostensibly without any thyroid problems who have uh, uh, TSH levels in this tail that kind of trails upward. Uh, so why is that? Well, it turns out that there are two uh, groups of people kind of hiding in here. Um, and uh, one of them is older people and the other is people with anti-TPO or anti-thyroid antibodies um, as sort of an incipient or perhaps a sub-subclinical uh, thyroid problem. And that's shown from this very large population-based studies as well as others where I've graphed for you here um, uh, the 97th percentile of the TSH. So this is the upper limit of the laboratory reference range that your laboratory will be telling you uh, defines a normal versus an elevated TSH. And if you um, uh, graph this by age, and you don't know the person's antibody status, that's shown in green, you can see that the upper limit of normal of TSH goes up so that by the time somebody is 70 years old, a TSH of about seven is actually normal. Well, um, some of these people, as I mentioned, could have very mild or sub-subclinical thyroid disease. So let's subtract out the ones who have a positive TPO antibodies, which is a uh, sensitive marker for uh, autoimmune thyroid disease. And if you do that um, and you graph the upper limit of normal here in blue, you can see that the it, it does go down, but it still increases with age. So again, by the time someone is 70 or 80 years old, a TSH of six is normal. So the other thing that's going on in those that big epidemiology meta-analysis I just showed you is that many of those older people who are labeled with subclinical or mild hypothyroidism with a TSH of five, six, seven may not have any thyroid problem at all. And that may be why their cardiovascular risk is not elevated. Okay, so regardless of the TSH cutoff that we're using, what if we treat that mild hypothyroidism? What happens to cardiovascular um, shown on the left and all-cause mortality shown on the right? Um, so, okay, I'm going to ignore that. Um, so this is another recent meta-analysis of over 21,000 participants. In this case, they all had mild or subclinical hypothyroidism, and they uh, some of them were treated with LT4, and some of them were not. And you can see that LT4 treatment over time reduced cardiovascular and all-cause mortality, again, only in the younger people. 
Okay, so let's get back to my case. Um, my diagnosis was that she does have mild or subclinical hypothyroidism. Uh, it's persistent, uh, and the TSH was 10 to 12, remember. Um, it's probably Hashimoto's disease. That's by far the most common cause of mild hypothyroidism in the United States, um, and her little firm goiter was consistent with that. Um, so, uh, given that um, she was young and she had a TSH elevation uh, above 10, um, I recommended that uh, we start low-dose T4. Now, why am I talking about a TSH of above uh, 10? And that is because uh, I didn't show on those previous slides, but the best data for cardiovascular risk and risk mitigation with LT4 is if the uh, baseline TSH is in the 7 to 10 range. Um, the data uh, are much, much less impressive for the TSH of 4.5 to 7 or so. Um, and so um, she had already gotten out of that range. But I also explained to her that um, her multiple symptoms were most likely unrelated to thyroid function. Um, if they were related to thyroid function, um, they should get better on the LT4, um, but I needed to set reasonable expectations. Um, and so they needed to be monitored. So what happened? We did start low-dose LT4. Her repeat TSH six weeks later was in the middle of the normal range, but she didn't feel any better. None of her symptoms had improved. She became angry at this and refused to return to clinic. So she's not alone uh, in this regard. You may have seen this play out in your own clinics. About 10% of LT4-treated patients uh, in big surveys report continued reduced quality of life and dissatisfaction with therapy. Um, I and my colleagues uh, in the American Thyroid Association looked into this in a little bit more detail with a survey we sent out online um, in 2017. Uh, we got over 11,000 respondents, and now obviously this is not a randomized or um, uh, um, cross-section of patients, probably the one, uh, certainly the ones who were more dissatisfied uh, were more interested in filling out this survey. Um, and in fact, uh, we did a Likert satisfaction scale, satisfaction for therapy, and um, the mean score was only 5 out of 10. Over half of these patients changed care providers at least twice due to dissatisfaction specifically with their thyroid treatment, and some of them more than 10 times, which is kind of stunning. The major areas of dissatisfaction, no surprise, uh, I've graphed them for you here, and you can see the majority of the respondents had exactly the same problems uh, that my patient came to clinic with. So um, we've treated my patient with T4. She still has symptoms. Oftentimes, then what happens is uh, she'll come back to clinic and she'll say, well, um, I've heard that more thyroid hormone is better, so I want you to increase my dose. Um, and that begs the question of whether altering thyroid doses in and near the reference range uh, really affects um, these uh, types of outcomes. Um, and that hadn't been well studied at all in the literature. And so a few years ago, uh, my colleagues and I at OHSU uh, designed this study. Um, we recruited 138 otherwise healthy uh, subjects who, uh, who had adult onset primary hypothyroidism. They had been on chronic LT4 with normal TSH levels. We brought them in and they completed extensive baseline tests of quality of life, mood, cognitive function, and metabolic function, exactly the issues that um, are often persistent. 
Now, again, a limitation of this study is that we didn't specifically target symptomatic patients. So I just want to point that out. After their baseline tests, we randomized them to one of three target TSH levels on LT4. Low normal, TSH of 0.34 up to 2.5, which should be the mean of the bell-shaped curve if TSH had a bell-shaped curve. High normal TSH, 2.5 to 5.6, which at the time was our upper limit of our laboratory reference range, and then even mildly elevated TSH with a TSH up to 12. Um, so how did we achieve these TSH levels? Well, my colleague, Dr. Catherine Schuff, uh, every six weeks, uh, what she, uh, she, well, she randomized them to one, uh, to one of the three TSH target groups, uh, decided on an initial LT4 dose to try and get there, and then every six weeks, she measured a TSH level and adjusted the LT4 dose to, again, try and get them into that target TSH range. Um, and then at the end of six months, we repeated the baseline tests. And as you can see, we were uh, uh, successful, um, whereas the in the low normal TSH group, sorry, I'm having trouble with this again, um, their mean LT4 dose was uh, 1.5, which is kind of a, a full replacement dose. And that dose decreased uh, into the high normal and mildly elevated TSH group. Um, and the TSH uh, target levels were reached 1.34, 3.74, and 9.74. Um, so the model was uh, successful. Free T4 levels uh, understandably decreased across the three groups but T3 levels did not change. And that is actually pretty classic for mild changes in uh, levothyroxine dose. You don't actually see a big change in T3. Okay, so what study measures or outcomes did we measure? Um, they were extensive. They're shown on this slide. Uh, we did a number of validated measures of uh, hypothyroid symptoms, quality of life, and mood. We did a lot of cognitive testing uh, focused on the cognitive domains of memory and executive function, which is where our patient complaints are and where animal studies have shown prominent central nervous system effects of thyroid hormone. And then we did extensive metabolic testing as well. So uh, cut to the chase, long story short, at the end of the study, there were no significant differences among the three groups, whether they had low normal, high normal, or mildly elevated TSH levels um, in any of these outcomes. So what we know from this study is that if you increase LT4 doses in patients who already have normal TSH levels, uh, it does not help any of these outcomes. And again, the important point to make is this was a blinded study. So we avoided um, uh, biases uh, based on what patients knew they were taking. Okay, so that doesn't seem like it's a very good therapeutic option to um, push people's LT4 doses to try and reduce their TSH levels within the reference range. What about alternate thyroid hormone preparations? Patients read a lot about this on the internet and they often come in asking about it. And um, what we're talking about here are really two flavors of alternate thyroid hormone preparations. We're talking about LT3. Um, the brand name that's most common is Cytomel, but you can get other um, types as well. Um, or desiccated thyroid extract shown here, which is uh, basically ground up and purified beef or 
network thyroid, and it has both T4 and T3 in it, but it has higher levels of T3 um, than are normally circulating around um, in our uh, bodies. So why are we talking about T3? Well, the observation is that many LT4-treated hypothyroid patients have normal TSH levels, but they have low T3 levels. So it kind of makes sense to say, well, let's supplement their T3. Although I note that if you uh, study these patients, their T3 levels, in fact, are not correlated with symptoms. So that's a little bit of a uh, caveat there. So this observation and the continued uh, persistence of symptoms has led now to probably 14 or 15 uh, blinded, randomized, controlled studies where some of a patient's uh, LT4 is substituted with LT3. Um, but unfortunately, those studies have not shown improvement uh, generally in mood or cognitive function. So that's been disappointing. There are two additional studies of randomized controlled trials. One of them re completely replaced LT4 with LT3, which I don't recommend. It's hard to do. Um, and the other replaced the LT4 with desiccated thyroid extract. Neither study showed any difference in quality of life or cognitive measures. They both showed a decrease in weight by about one kilogram, one to two kilograms. So again, very disappointing. And again, remember these are blinded studies. So we've taken the patient bias out of the equation. Okay, so that's disappointing as well. Let's, um, uh, so there are a lot of uh, biological hypotheses and a lot of discussion and controversy in the thyroid uh, field as to what is going on in these patients' brains uh, to um, uh, make them have continued symptoms even though we think we're treating their hypothyroidism adequately. And I'm not going to go into those various biological hypotheses because they're still um, uh, being studied and there are really no positive results yet. Um, but I'd be happy to talk about those during the question uh, phase if you want. Instead, I want to turn to some other um, data in the literature um, on um, what other factors might be going on in our patients. And the first um, thing to notice is that hypothyroid symptoms are common in both subclinical hypothyroid and in euthyroid subjects. And that's shown very nicely in this recent publication where these authors uh, developed a, a survey of 13 symptoms that are very common in patients with overt hypothyroidism. Uh, and that's shown uh, on the dotted line here, the prevalence of those symptoms. And you can see 80% of overt hypothyroid patients are tired, 60 some percent have dry skin and so on. And then they took this survey and they um, uh, uh, applied it to over uh, 7,600 euthyroid subjects with no thyroid disease and with normal TSHs, and then 376 subjects with mild or subclinical hypothyroid uh, disease. And remember, they didn't know they had it. So um, what you can see here is that the euthyroid subjects, uh, shown in the dashed line, also had pretty high prevalence of these symptoms. So I think that's about 50% of them felt tired. I feel tired. So... Um, this is not a surprise. Um, and you'll notice what's important here is that the subclinical hypothyroid subjects also had high rates of these hypothyroid type symptoms, and there were no differences in the scores between the subclinical hypothyroid and the euthyroid subjects, suggesting at least to me that we're looking at two unrelated issues in our patients. Okay, so um, if we don't think the symptoms are related to the thyroid disease, 
the next thing that patients ask us is, well, then what is going on? There's no research in the thyroid field about what is going on um, that could be explained by another diagnosis. So I've listed for you on this slide just some of my clinical observations from my patients. And that is that um, uh, depending on what symptoms and what physical exam findings you might be finding, uh, you may get clues as to other diagnoses. The most common, uh, no surprise, is depression and anxiety, um, but there are also other possibilities uh, that, again, you can get hints of if you see specific um, uh, issues uh, in, their in their history or their physical. So some of the patients I see eventually get diagnosed with fibromyalgia, sleep disorders, celiac disease, vitamin D deficiency, and hypogonadism. Some of them come in saying, um, I've been uh, diagnosed with adrenal fatigue. FYI, adrenal fatigue does not exist, but uh, adrenal insufficiency does. Um, it is rare, but occasionally um, I do pick that up. Um, and so uh, that leads me to my um, point that if you pay very careful attention to your patients and you don't automatically assume that all of their symptoms are due to their mild thyroid disease, you can sometimes pick up zebras. Um, and um, that it's doing, it's not doing our patients any favors if we automatically label all their symptoms as being due to the thyroid problem. Okay, another point is that the prevalence of symptoms depends on self-knowledge of a thyroid disorder regardless of the TSH level. And I've been implying this all along with my emphasis on the fact that the studies, the negative studies are blinded. So this is another study of uh, almost 6,000 older community uh, adults in the UK, and they did not know uh, anything about thyroid disease. Most of them were euthyroid, but 168 did have a mildly elevated TSH. And you can see here again, same story, uh, validated measures of anxiety and depression, no difference, uh, just like the other study I showed you. In contrast, over 19,000 women in Norway, most had no thyroid history and they had a mean TSH of 1.5. But about 1,100 of them did have a thyroid history. They were on LT4 and they had a matched uh, mean TSH. And here, the ones that knew they had a thyroid problem had increased levels of anxiety and depression, again, suggesting um, a, a, a kind of a labeling bias. So a uh, third point I want to bring out is that hypothyroid patients have a bias towards higher LT4 doses. Um, they've figured out from the uh, uh, kind of the public conventional wisdom that uh, if some T4 is good, more T4 is better. And I want to show you some more data from my study. Um, and this is uh, at the end of the study, before we broke the blind, we um, asked uh, subjects what dose they thought they were on. Were they on a higher dose, lower dose, or an unchanged dose from the beginning of the study, um, and then we compared that to what dose they actually were on. And as you can see here, they were not able to tell what we had done with their dose, which is good because that meant the study was truly blinded. But the interesting part is that we also asked them what dose they preferred, not knowing what dose they were actually on. Was it the dose at the end of the study, the start of the study, or no preference? And here we see a very different um, uh, thing going on. If they thought we had increased their dose, two-thirds of them preferred their dose, that dose. If they thought we had lowered their dose, 
96% of them preferred the dose at the start of the study. So people really don't want you to lower their LT4 dose, just uh, completely independent of what dose they're actually taking. Um, and finally, um, some uh, thoughts about patient expectations. Um, this is an online survey of over 1,000 hypothyroid patients. Um, most of them were dissatisfied with treatment. Uh, most of them expected uh, their symptoms to resolve very quickly. Significant number of them expected all of their symptoms to resolve and felt that they had not received adequate treatment from their primary care provider. Um, they felt that alternative sources were better and they expected to be referred to a specialist. Further investigating this area, um, there's a really lovely study just published about a month ago. Um, it was a 68-country online survey in five different languages of over 3,900 uh, hypothyroid patients, and they found that poor satisfaction with care did not correlate with the type of treatment. So LT4, combined LT4, LT3, desiccated thyroid extract didn't matter. What poor satisfaction did correlate with was no confidence in the healthcare staff, perception that the staff had insufficient knowledge, not given enough time to talk, not involved in decisions, feeling that the healthcare staff did not talk to them in an understandable way, and feeling they had not received enough information. So again, this is not a randomized sample. It is a biased sample, um, but it gives you some insight into uh, what our patients are uh, thinking about here. Okay, so with all of that having been said, how should we treat mild hypothyroidism? First, wait and recheck the TSH level in three to six months, because remember, it's common for this to be temporary. Treat persistent TSH elevations above that seven to 10 cutoff where we do think about cardiovascular events. Um, that's where the strongest data is, especially in our younger patients. And use discretion for lower elevations. Start with low doses of LT4, recheck the TSH as usual, adjust the dose as usual, and aim for an age-adjusted normal TSH level. Um, what is the target TSH level? Um, uh, and again, um, um, I'm thinking here now not of symptoms, but of the outcomes, long-term outcomes we care about. So this is uh, really hard to read. So this is uh, ischemic heart disease, heart failure, stroke, AFib, mortality, and fractures. Um, and this is a study of newly diagnosed hypothyroid patients. They were followed for a mean of six years. Um, and the reference range for TSH is shown on the vertical lines. And as you can see, if TSH was anywhere in the reference range, um, these long-term outcomes were okay. Um, but the uh, outcomes, adverse outcomes started to go up with low TSHs or with high TSHs. So the most important thing uh, in once you decide to treat a patient is to keep the TSH in the normal range, adjusted for age, and anywhere in the normal range, at least for the things that as an endocrinologist I'm worried about long-term is okay. So just a couple more points, um, and this is, this is obvious because you do this for all of your patients, not just for hypothyroid patients, and that is to set reasonable expectations address their concerns in a respectful fashion, consider other diagnoses if the symptoms persist. And then if none of that works, I do admit that I consider a low-dose uh, T3 trial 
because I can do it safely and I am very clear with the patient that this is an N of one experiment and let's try it for about six months. Let's monitor the thyroid levels. Let's make sure it's safe and you're not having side effects uh, and see if you feel better. And if it's a, if there's a bias or a placebo effect, okay. You know, if, if as long as we're not causing adverse reactions, that, that's okay with me. In my experience of people I start on LT3, about a third of them feel better great. About a third of them don't or even have side effects. And about a third of them feel better for a while and then come back and all their symptoms are back. Um, so I do tell people that this is a time-limited experiment. And then just one final little asterisk here. Nothing I've talked about so far this hour applies to women considering pregnancy or who are pregnant. That's a completely different group. Okay, and finally, before we turn to hyperthyroidism, consider stopping LT4 in selected patients. This is a meta-analysis of 16 studies, um, and uh, they, uh, patients had either overt hypothyroidism, subclinical, or maybe not even a, a diagnosis of hypothyroidism at all, and they were all on LT4, and the LT4 was stopped. 37% of them remained euthyroid after the thyroid hormone was stopped. And that was much more likely if they had subclinical hypothyroidism or no clear diagnosis in the past of hypothyroidism. So rather than keep your patients on lifelong therapy when they may not need it, consider a trial in those patients off LT4. Okay, let's turn now for the last couple of minutes to a hyperthyroid case. This is an 86-year-old woman, persistent suppressed TSH now, no symptoms of hyperthyroidism, which 86-year-olds don't usually have symptoms, um, but a very significant past medical history of aortic stenosis, hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, a stroke, and mild dementia. And those are her medications listed. On exam, uh, she's thin and elderly. There are her vital signs. She has an enlarged multinodular thyroid gland, um, and there's her uh, aortic stenosis murmur. She has normal deep tendon reflexes, a mild tremor, and here are her thyroid function tests, suppressed TSH, normal T4, normal T3, by definition, mild or subclinical hyperthyroidism. Here's her radioactive iodine scan, confirming a toxic multinodular goiter. Last caveat. Like temporary increases, temporary decreases in TSH are common, shown here, that if you get either a suppressed or a low TSH and you follow it over time without treatment, uh, a significant number of those resolve on their own, probably for the same reasons that I mentioned earlier. And again, it's usually best to repeat the TSH before you embark on an evaluation and treatment. And in the case of my patient, she had had suppressed TSHs actually for a number of years. Okay, so what do we care about uh, in my patient? Well, remember she's got mild dementia and thyroid hormone affects the brain. Um, and so there's been a lot in the literature as to whether mild hyperthyroidism uh, increases the risk of uh, dementia uh, or cognitive decline. Um, and that was settled um, by a recent uh, meta-analysis, individual participant level of over 38,000 um, older participants. Um, and they actually looked at all the different kinds of thyroid dysfunction. And there was no association between any thyroid dysfunction and cognitive function or dementia risk. And I've just highlighted the what we're talking about right now, the subclinical hyperthyroid risk. Um, so her dementia is probably not related. 
However, I am worried about her heart. Um, this is a participant level meta-analysis of over 50,000 participants, followed for almost nine years. 4% um, of them had um, subclinical hyperthyroidism, and those patients or subjects had increased all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality in events, and atrial fibrillation. Uh, these risks were higher if the TSH was suppressed rather than just low. And finally, um, uh, we worry about bones in hyperthyroidism. So again, this is a meta-analysis of, in this case, over 300,000 participants, um, and uh, they were older, and they were followed for a mean of 3 to 20 years. And uh, those who had mild hyperthyroidism had increased risks of any fracture, hip, spine, and non-spine fractures. And again, um, this study did not look into, but other studies have reported that the risks are greatest if the TSH is suppressed. So back to my patient, I diagnosed her with mild hyperthyroidism due to a toxic multinodular goiter. I started her on methimazole to normal her, normalize her TSH level and protect her heart and bones. And on follow-up over a number of years, advancing dementia, but stable cardiac status. So how should we treat mild hyperthyroidism? Um, if they're on LT4, lower the dose. That's easy. <clears throat> Otherwise, make sure that the patient doesn't have non-thyroidal illness to exp uh, explain that low TSH, because that should not be treated. Um, then wait and recheck a TSH level after three to six months, because remember, temporary decreases are common. And then if you do uh, think that you need to treat, you have to determine the etiology of the hyperthyroidism and tailor the treatment. So uh, this uh, this will be my last and most important take-home point, and that is that no matter what degree of hypo or hyperthyroidism you diagnose in your patients, the most important thing to remember is that if the TSH levels are either high or low, patients have increased rates of adverse outcomes. We know from a lot of studies that overall mortality is increased in undertreated hypo or hyperthyroidism of any degree, and that cardiovascular events are um, more common in undertreated or overtreated hypothyroidism. So the single most important thing, um, once we decide to treat any type of thyroid disorder, is to try and keep the TSH in that reference range. I'm going to stop there and acknowledge my colleagues and the staff of our Clinical Research Center for those uh, experimental studies I showed you. Thank you so much for your attention, and I'd be glad to answer any questions. Dr. Samuel, thank you for an excellent talk and a great tribute to Dr. Kammer. Um, I have some questions online, and we'll go ahead and field questions from the room here as well. Thank you. You taught me a lot, as uh, Dr. Kammer always uh, did as well. Uh, one trivial pursuit question. The uh -oh. Iowa gambling <laughs> panel or questionnaire. Yeah. I didn't think of gamble <clears throat> gambling as executive function. Right. That is a really interesting uh, uh, task uh, that my uh, cognitive neuroscientist colleagues taught me about. So um, the Iowa gambling task is uh, considered more of a real-world um, uh, test of um, executive function in terms of judgment, um, which is very hard to measure with our classic cognitive tests. Um, and in this task, um, uh, subjects have... Uh, 
uh, on the computer four decks of cards. Um, and they have uh, some money that they can gamble on which uh, uh, card uh, from which deck they're going to turn over. And what they don't know is that some of the uh, one, uh, the, uh, the, the decks are either high risk, high reward, low risk, low reward, low risk, high reward, and so on. And um, people who exercise good judgment uh, tend to figure that out over the multiple attempts, and they tend to start um, only going for the low risk, high reward deck. People without good judgment uh, tend to lose money on that. So so it's that part of executive function that that is testing. Real quick, the <clears throat> fact that some of the hypothyroid patients have Hashimoto's, so do you routinely check thyroid antibody as part of your evaluation and how does it influence? Yeah. That's a great question. I do not because I find that it does not affect my management. I go by the TSH levels because if somebody has positive antibodies and a TSH of five, I'm going to follow them, but I'm not going to treat them. If they have negative antibodies and a TSH of 10, I'm probably going to treat them. The, um, uh, the exception to that is uh, women um, uh, trying to get pregnant, or who have miscarriages, um, because in, in those women, a thyroid autoimmunity is thought to play a role. Um, but I do not check anti-TPO antibodies that often, because frankly, it, it doesn't, I mean, it's cool to know what they've got, but it doesn't change my treatment. Hey there, great talk. Thank you. I was wondering about the study uh, that you guys did and studies like it where we're treating patients who are within the normal range or, you know, subclinical hypothyroidism. Did we measure um, any increase or appreciable increase in harms with increasing the yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, there were no uh, adverse effects and no more dropouts uh, in one group than uh, in the other group. So as far as we can tell, um, being very careful to clamp these TSHs, um, we did not see uh, side effects. That is also true in most of the other studies I've shown you. Caveat uh, number one here is that um, none of these studies go on for years. Um, so ours was a six-month study. That's actually one of the longer studies in the literature because these are super expensive. That study I showed you was a five-year NIH study at about $400,000 a year. So we're not going to do a lot of those studies. So that's the caveat. Um, the second caveat is that um, some of the studies of specifically of LT3 do show some adverse events, especially if you push the T3 dose um, uh, uh, on the higher side. Um, and I've seen that in my own practice where people will come back and say, yeah, I took the T3 at 8 o'clock and by 10 o'clock I couldn't get on the treadmill because my heart was pounding. So T3 can be a little futzy that way, but in general, no. Hi, Mary. Claudia Leonard back here. Nice to see you. Um, that was great. So I have um, a practical, easy question, which is when we take people off their thyroid medication, do we need to taper? Can we just stop it? 
Um, you can just stop it because the, you can do that safely because the uh, half-life of T4 is, did you say T4? T4. Yeah. T4, okay. Sorry. The half-life of T4 is so long that it will naturally, gradually go down. Um, but I do sometimes taper it because uh, if my patient is really skittish and they're like, oh, no, no. So I'll say, well, let's try you on half dose for two or three months. So um, I do it based on patient preference, but there's no reason that you can't just stop it. And then my second question is someone who doesn't like to take pills. Um, the cardiovascular risk in, in young people, mm -hmm. it looks like that relative risk was pretty small. Yeah. I'm assuming that the absolute risk is tiny. That's correct. Do we have any numbers on that? Uh, yeah, I, I don't have them off the top of my head, but you're correct. The relative risk, although it is statistically significant, is not as huge as we see in other studies where it's double, triple, quadruple the risk. And so I think you can safely uh, not treat patients, especially with very mild TSH elevations, and then just follow them carefully. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and draw from a question online here. Have you found any effects from patients who supplement with zinc or selenium? And would you check the levels of these minerals in people who are supplementing? So to answer the uh, second question first, no, I do not. Um, the zinc and selenium issues are interesting in that, um, especially for selenium, uh, there are a number of studies out there now to suggest that selenium, so selenium uh, is a, uh, a metal, an, uh, an element that is essential for uh, thyroid gland function, um, not necessarily just thyroid hormone production, but thyroid gland function. Um, and we don't have a lot of selenium deficiency here. Um, as opposed to in other areas of the world. Um, but there are studies that uh, show, maybe half a dozen studies out there, that selenium can actually lower thyroid peroxidase antibodies and maybe cool down. Uh, it has an anti-inflammatory action in the thyroid. And that has led to some interest in, well, maybe we can treat mild hypothyroidism with selenium instead of uh, with uh, thyroid hormone. Um, and there isn't any data on that because the people who were studied um, either didn't have uh, TSH that went down or they were already on levothyroxine. So we don't actually have any hard data on that. Great, thank you so much, Ms. Miller. Topic I was certainly not familiar with. Um, want to acknowledge that we are right at the top of the hour at nine o'clock. Thank you again for your time, your teaching, your expertise, Dr. Samuels. Thank you.